Father, we thank you for the next generation. You keep giving that next generation. The question is, what will we do with those gifts, that next generation? Will we train them? Will we point their little hearts and minds towards the Lord Jesus Christ, His Word, the sufficiency of Scriptures, the truth of an almighty God who, who knows us and loves us and has a plan? Or will we let the world and their flesh dictate their lives, Lord? So, Lord, as we study this tonight, we'll be clear that you want us to teach this next generation. And yet, the nation of Israel was told those exact same things and failed. And so, Lord, we'll be reminded of what happens when it fails, but also be reminded of those glorious commands to teach the next generations the works of God. And Lord, we pray that our church would continue to engage in our children's ministry. That we would have all the volunteers, all the help we could ever ask for because the next generation is either going to follow Christ or reject them. And we pray that, Lord, on our watch, as, as our church, as we come alongside these parents and these families here, Lord, that we would not drop that baton. We would not drop that mantle, Lord. We would pick that up. And our children here at Riverbend would be well taught. We know you have to save them, God. We can't save anyone. But we can sure point them to the truth. So I pray that even as we study this text tonight, that we would be encouraged to be plugged into our children's ministry. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you turn to Psalm 78, I want to just chat about it just a minute as I kind of think through an introduction to a passage like this. Biblical Christianity, if there's, uh, we hold to many things, but what we hold to that holds all things together is we hold to a high view of the scriptures. That's a term we'll use if you see it in our doctrinal statement. You'll see it in our conversations. When we talk about bibliology, we talk about the doctrine of the scriptures. And we hold to a high view of God's word. We believe in inerrancy. That believe that our Bible is without error. If it has error in it, we have wasted a lot of time. I've wasted my entire life. <laughs> We believe this Bible is God's word, and because it's God's word, it is inerrant, it's infallible, and, and the reason that we say that is because we believe it's God's word. So God is inerrant, God is infallible, and so his word is inerrant, and his word is infallible. And that's what we're to teach, right? And so scriptures... Um, I'll hold the truth and the meaning of life and, and, and salvation. Everything we need is in them for life and godliness. Now, the scriptures are not only inerrant in matters of faith, right? And even, and even morals, right? We study, well, we realize our morality comes from the scriptures as well. But they're, they're inerrant, certainly there. But they're also inerrant in other subjects. And two of them we can talk about. One we're going to talk specifically about tonight. One would be science, it isn't hard to study the scriptures and begin to understand how creation works. There are tons of passages that teach us of everything from waves to planets. Uh, how, how gravity works. The Bible is full of science and it's sufficient and errant in science. But our passage tonight really teaches us that God's word is inerrant in history. God has recorded a historical inerrant document for us to understand how to live our lives and what happened in history as well. So Christianity is based in a historical truth. 
We can see it all the way back as God has laid down his law through the scriptures. He has told us who he is. He has told us what he did. He has told us what he's going to do. And there's a record of that history as we follow that history to know him and to believe in him. Now, the Old Testament record records the works of God from creation through the nation of Israel all the way to the silent years between the two testimonies, right? So that's, that's the Old Testament. It records that. It not only records the nation of Israel, it records much about the nations around them. And so the Bible has a proven historical document. And it's not only proven to Christians. A lot of, certainly we as Christians believe it's a historical proven doctrine document, but scholars, not, actually non-Christian scholars often refer to it to try to understand what happened in the past because of its accuracy. It's, it's 1,500 years of inspired recording of the life of humans and God interacting with them. And so we find a biblical narrative that's often used to locate places even when history has disappeared, the Bible will tell us who was there, how many of them was there, who begat who, how they came about, and what happened to them. The Bible tells us that. And so it is a very historical, inerrant narrative of history that is so accurate, we know who came, who died, who lived, and where they went. Now, the same is true of the New Testament, but there we begin to find the central theme is the historical person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is not a mythical person. He is not someone that just disappeared. We have no trace of him. The Bible has a very, very clear trace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And certainly he's traced through the Old Testament in his seed, but it is in the New Testament where he appears on earth. And we have that from all the way from the promise of his conception to that event, to to, his, uh, to Mary's birth of that child, and then all the way through his early years, and then through his ministry to his death and resurrection. And we have this perfect historical narrative of that. And that's extremely important because our salvation is based in a historical Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we teach our children, we teach our children, he is real. <laughs> the Bible teaches a real Jesus, a Jesus that was on this earth. And he was part of history. And we understand that history because it leads us to the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross in his resurrection. And it's a historical document in that. Now, history is not just recorded in Old Testament, New Testament narratives. Uh, we find it rehearsed throughout passages. If you study the major and minor prophets, and you go, well, what's a major and minor prophet? Well, a major prophet is the longer text, right? Isaiah, Ezekiel, the, those, are, those are the major ones. And they're just named that way per se because of the length of the book. The minor ones, the Hosea's and Micah's and so forth. And, uh, those are the smaller books, um, not minor in truth, but all of them. So when you study the majors and minors, you find the history of Israel in them as well. And then you go to the Psalms. The Psalms have some of the greatest historical recordings uh, of the nation of Israel in the life and event of that nation that went through. Psalms like uh, 105 through 107. Incredible, incredible documented verse-by-verse uh, verse detail of history. Psalms 114, Psalms 135 through 136. And then this psalm right here, Psalm 78, are some of the great historical psalms that teach us of the history of Israel. 
when you slide into the New Testament, you come to a lot of historical detail. We've already talked about the life of Christ. But when you get to Acts chapter 7, what's Acts, who's in Acts chapter 7? What character? He gets stoned to death. Stephen. You remember that sermon? When's the last time you went and read that sermon? You want a good, quick overview of the Old Testament? Read Stephen, Stephen's sermon. He stands in the midst of the killers of Christ and preaches that sermon. And he preaches it out of his heart. And he walks down through the history of the nation of Israel. The good, the bad, and the ugly. And then he ties all that together under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And with that, they pick up stones and kill him. He was so accurate, so accurate in his knowledge of the nation of Israel that the detail in, in how he put that together it was nothing but inspiration as he spoke that. When you go to the trials of Paul, as Paul goes before trials, as he works his way through Rome and eventually to get to Caesar, he rehearses often bits and pieces of the nation of Israel all lining up, he uses all of that history to come and land on the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible is full of an errant history that God has written. And so these passages become very important to us. So whether in the Old Testament or the New Testament, these accounts or records are to be told to the next generation. That's what this text is about. He does not want those truths lost. Now, Psalm 78 is a great example of one of, I think, one of the greatest uh, recordings, and it's the longest. It's the longest of all the Psalms that recounts the history of the people of Israel and, and what happens when they disobey. And again, the lesson that God wants here is he uses Asaph, the writer here. He wants, he wants God taught. He wants God taught who he is. He wants God taught what he did. And he wants the people to understand what happens when you don't put your faith in God. Notice verse 9. We're going to talk, tackle uh, 1 through 8 here in a second. But just drop down through 9 through 16. This is just a portion of it. I really encourage you to go read the rest of the chapter tonight before you go to bed. It is, it is a phenomenal read as, you, as it sweeps you through a great majority of the Old Testament. Verse 9, he says, sons of Ephraim, that would be the northern tribes, Ephraim, uh, was sometimes the Old Testament used that name just to gather tribes together, were archers equipped with bows, yet they turned back in the day of battle. Now listen to the history that starts coming up. They did not keep the covenant of God. They refused to walk in His law. They forgot His deeds and His miracles that He had shown them. He wrought wonders before their fathers in the land of Egypt, in the fields of Zon. He divided the seas and caused them to pass through it. He made the water stand up like heaps. And then he led them with a cloud by day and all the night with fire, a light by fire. He split the rock in the wilderness and gave them abundant drinks like the ocean's depths. He brought forth streams also from the rock and caused the waters to run down like the rivers and then so forth. You can keep reading with it. It's just an incredible narrative, is it, of, of the Old Testament of how everything went by. And, and we get a little more in there as the, the writers inspired. Never back in the narrative where the water comes out do we hear that term that the water flowed like the depths of the ocean. But through time as that historical truth was passed down, 
the realization of how much water actually came out of that rock to feed two million plus people and all their livestock, it must have been like the depths of the ocean flowing out of that. And, and, and doubtlessly, as we saw in our book of Exodus and then Leviticus and now into Numbers where we're at normally on Wednesday nights, we realize that he must have sustained them for quite some time with water coming from that rock. And so you begin to see this beautiful narrative that comes out of just one psalm here and encourage you. So these inspired lessons are from historical counts. And what the Bible is doing here is pleading for God's people not to fall into the same sin the generation before them fell into. And the question that is being posed here is will the reader listen? Will those who hear God's word listen to God, obey him, or suffer the same consequences the people before them suffered because of their sin? Now, the first eight verses of Psalm 78, which Parker read to us tonight, are uh, what's often called a preamble. He's warming up. He's challenging this nation here in that are now under the rule of most likely I think this is probably Solomon it could be at the end of David's life when this is read I'll explain that in a little bit here um, he's challenged them not to go back not to be like their forefathers who suffered greatly because they did not heed the warnings and so this preamble is a warning in itself that Israel's sin their history is recorded and, and, and yet, in this, what he's going to do, this is what I'm after tonight, he particularly highlights the necessity to teach the next generation the truth of God's word. And I love this passage for this. Uh, this, this kind of passage really stuck with Gene and I as we raised our children. We saw it as a God-given command, a God-given uh, ordained uh, truth given to us that we were to pass that on to our next children. Now, we can't save our children, but we believe God charged us to give his truth of God's word to them. That's what he calls parents to do. And he calls us to do that with grace and mercy, but he calls us to do that. And so we did that in our home. We made sure that we, we, we knew we were in a good church because we were, I was pastoring and we were trying to teach those things, but we made sure our children in church. And we made sure as a church leader that they had good Sunday school teachers that we're teaching those truths. We want them to come alongside us to do those things because we see in the passage like this what happens when the world gets a hold of your children. And we'll see that uh, as we recount some of this. So let me just give you two short thoughts tonight and, and then we'll, we'll go get those little guys and go home with them. Number one, listen to biblical history and learn from the past to enjoy worship today. Listen to biblical history or, or you could even say learn from biblical history and learn from the past to enjoy worship today. People don't enjoy worship today because they've never learned of God. And, and, I, and I can tell a person who truly worships God, uh, and not only outwardly, but in their own hearts and their own desires and their own way they live their life, is because they have come face to face with who God is. And particularly who he is through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now when we, when we study passages like this, I have a couple of verses that I write like in the heading here of Psalm 78. Uh, one of them is Romans 15, 14. You've heard me quote this quite often in our passages through the Pentateuch. Ro Romans 15, 4 says this. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for 
Whose instruction? Our instruction. So you say, Scott, well, this is all about Israel. This is a long time ago. Paul reminds the church that whatever was written before was written for our instruction. So we go back and we study the book of Numbers like we're doing on Wednesday night, right? We're, we're going through that chapter by chapter, verse by verse, studying and realizing how that points forward to the Lord Jesus Christ and how that impacts my life. So we're, we're obeying this verse. Whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instructions so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. You know why people don't have hope and they just run to the world and they get caught up in so many things? Is they don't know the Bible. And, and that's what I think the world's always doing to us, isn't it? It's trying to pull us into this hopeless cycle of trying to please ourselves and, and, and self-gratification and, and cause us to be so self-centered right now. The Bible brings us into an incredible hope in God. And that's why we read it. That's why I'm always urging you, as you start a new year, hey, do you have a Bible program? Are you reading your Bible? Are you reading through the Bible? Are you reading the New Testament? Are you reading the Gospels? Are you reading your Bible? Within the Bible is the hope that God gives you. You're never going to find that in the world. The world's dying. The world is headed for judgment. And so we study those things. Another verse that I have written down is out of 1 Corinthians 10, 6. And there... <laughs> Paul was rehearsing the sins of the nation of Israel and, and the judgment that fell upon them. And he says in Corinthians 10.6, Now these things happened as an example for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved them. Now that's a strong verb there, isn't it? The nation of Israel craved the sinful things of their neighbors. And it led them to so much trouble. And look, here we are in a world where everything is immediate, right? Everything can be on your phone from the most vile things to, to an addiction to shopping. Everything right there, craving things that are not of God. That's what the world puts in front of us. That's why the Bible says, if you make friends with the world, you're no friend of God. There's always a craving. There's, there's, there's a flesh wars against your soul, First Peter says. There's a war going on for your soul. And so the Bible reminds us that these truths, of the, particularly here of the Old Testament as we study this, these truths are here to remind us that we should not crave for the things that the nation of Israel craved for or the things the world craves for. Now look at the first couple of verses here. Verse 1. Listen. Asap, the, the great choir director, starts out this, one of the longer psalms within the scriptures, in particular the longest of the historical psalms, says, listen. He's trying to get your attention. Why does he have to say that? Because we're always somewhere else, aren't we? Right now, you're battling to stay with me, aren't you? Because you have all kinds of things. Some of you have worked some very long days. Some of you were up before dark and out of the house. I know that. I understand that. And some of you have some real trials going on in your life. It's hard, right? And so the Bible says, listen. This is so good for you to cue in right now. And so Asaph says, listen. Oh, my people, to my instructions, I have something to tell you. I have something worth listening to. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I don't know if Asap knew he was inspired by God at this moment, but something's happening. He knows he's preaching truth, and he's pinning down these words, and the nation is to listen up. I will open my mouth in a parable. Well, parable is an interesting word. It's, in the Greek, it's a a compound word, it's, it's two, two words put together. Parable means to, 
to come alongside. Para means to come alongside something. And, and bolin is the, the word means to throw something. So I'm going to throw you a story to come alongside you so you'll help and understand what's going on here. And Jesus was the best, right, at telling parables. And, and if you study the parables of Jesus, if you go back, many of them are connected to historical events of Israel. And he uses vineyards and, and, and women and wineskins and all kinds of things to, to bring back stories, to bring forward to a truth of what happens when you fall away from God and when you don't walk with him. And then he says, I will utter dark sayings of old. You say, well, what's a dark saying? Why would that be in the Bible? Well, it's, it uses the word dark there because there are things that have been forgotten. There are things you have forgotten about God you need to be reminded of. And that's really good. That's, that's what we do. We study God's word and we go, wow. You know, I, sometimes I forget how great and how mighty he is. Sometimes my heart and mind get sucked away into this life and the struggles and I forget how all-powerful, how sovereign my God is. And so he says, I'm going to utter dark sayings, things that the nation forgot. And then verse 3, which we have heard and known. So these are familiar truths. We keep preaching truth. Peter says that he says, I do not tire of giving these things to you again. I do not tire of them. You know what I never tire of? The gospel. I never tire about singing and preaching and teaching about the work of my Lord Jesus Christ. I never tire of getting in a passage and studying it again. I was thinking today as I was finishing this this morning, I thought, you know, I've preached this several times. But, but it was all fresh again as I got into it. And that's the power of the word of God. There's a fresh truth to it. And, and, and though we may remember some of these things, we, we hear them anew. We hear them afresh. And he says, and our fathers have told us. So this is, he said, I'm not coming up with something new. This is what's been passed down. This is the history of God. This is what he's done with our nation. And then he says this, verse 4, and here's, this is a key verse. We will not conceal them from their children. We will not. That's a statement, a strong statement by Asaph. And he's saying, we are going to, unlike our forefathers failed, we are going to tell the next generation. Why do we have children's church and Sunday school and tag, uh, children's worship choirs. Why do we have that? Because of a verse right like this. We are going to tell the next generation of the greatness of God. That's what our job is. That's our job as parents, grandparents. That's our job as elders and pastors. That's our job as church members. Our job is to tell the next generation of the greatness of God. And if we fail that, brothers and sisters, it's, it's an, unimaginable, an unimaginable sin to not pass this truth to the next generation. And it's where, it's where Christianity has fallen time and time again. You can trace it through Europe. You can trace it through uh, places around the world where, in a sense, that light has gone out. And you can trace it back to a generation who did not tell the next generation the truth of God's word. And pretty soon they let the false teaching of the world begin to come in and doubting Scripture, and they begin to doubt Scripture, and they begin to doubt its sufficiency and its inerrancy, and they begin to question it, and they begin to believe in the world's science over the biblical science. And pretty soon, the church is gone in many places. Go to places like Switzerland. Go to places throughout Germany. Go to places throughout through Europe where the Reformation burned 
and, and, and masses of people were saved. Go there now. We have no seminaries. We have no Bible schools. It is so difficult to find a, a handful of men to train in many of those places. They did not pass the truth of God's word to the next generation. Well, hey, as long as this group of elders is here, we're passing it. We're, and we're going to keep bugging you. <laughs> are you helping in children's ministry? What are you doing? Who are you sending to camp? Who are, who are you helping? What babies are you holding? We're going to keep pushing that because we know if we drop this ball, brothers and sisters, oh, what comes of the church? What a beautiful thought. Look at verse 4, the middle of it. The command comes this way, but tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord. We're not going to conceal it. We're going to tell the generation, the next generation to come, those ones, the praise of the Lord. Now, I think there's a real important truth there. We tell our children the praises of the Lord. It won't take them hard, long to study, and they'll go, well, there's some really hard things in the Old Testament. Yes, there is. And that's what sin, this is what sin does. We'll, we'll help them walk through some of those challenging texts in the Old Testament where there's death and uh, all kinds of things that go on that we wait as they get a little older to explain. But we start with the praises of God. In the beginning, God. Let's just take those five words. In the beginning, God. Let's start there. Let's start with his eternality. He's always existed. And that's what they're doing in this catechism that's been written for them, to understand who God is. Even at their young minds, get, start to understand he's, he's always been around. There's no starting date for God. He was perfectly content without us. He didn't need us. He, 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 he wasn't in need of any fellowship. He was perfect in his triune form. Let them think about that and praise God for those things. And then look at it says in the end of verse 4, and this is key again. Tell him of his strengths and his wonderful works that he has done. You know, Israel is such a great lesson because in Israel we see so much of his power and strength. We see him come in and rob Pharaoh of his people and take them back. With a mighty outstretched arm, he did it. He split seas and rains bread from heaven and flies in quail and splits rocks and over and over you see the mighty strength of God. You know what? Our children need to hear that. They're, they're taught the superheroes fly around in other galaxies and they may come to this world or they may not and they're Thors and whatever else they are. I, I can't keep up with all, all the things. Oh, that's fiction and bad fiction when you really think about it. This is not. This is God. This is the creator of the world, the one who spoke creation into existence. And so it is about his strength and his wondrous works that he has done. Oh, I, I love the grandparent stage now. Um, what a joy to sit with grandchildren now and, and to teach them. And one of the things, the blessings, and, and Proverbs does such a good job of this to remind us, parents, when you know you've done your job is when your grandchildren love God. We know that it's been passed down. You've taught your children, and they begin to teach their children. That's the crown of, of glory that the Proverbs talk about. And so we work hard at that. And, and I love grandchildren because, you know what, I've 
think we're probably doing a better job with them than we did with them. Because, you know, we're caught up in trying to rub two nickels together when those kids are little. Now, God, by grace, gives you a little more means, and, and we can sit with our little ones in our lap and begin to rehearse those truths. Grandparents, don't think you're out of the game yet. In fact, you have so much influence on your grandchildren. Use that influence. Teach them of the great things of God, his mighty works that he has done. Second thought, teach the children to place their confidence in our God and Savior. Teach children to place their confidence in God, our Savior. Boy, the world is teaching children to place confidence in themselves, isn't it? You know, we we have this whole gender thing going on now. But you know where that came from? It came from our generation when we started telling them, hey, you can do anything you want to do, you can be anything you want to be. Well, that was a lie from the pit of hell. We live in a fallen world. You cannot be anything you want to be and do anything you want to do. <laughs> That's not true, is it? But we told them that on TV, and we took all our superstars, and, and we told them all that. So, you know what? I don't want to be a boy anymore. I want to be a girl. Well, yeah, that's what's happening today. Our generation actually taught that to them, and now here they are. It's not true. We take them back to the garden, and the first, did you hear what the first things our children said as Bobby was leading them through that? God created the male and female. That was so good, so good to hear that. And those children, as they go on, it, depending on what circles they're in, they're going to be told that's a lie here real soon. And they're going to have to deal with that. And if they don't have a mom and dad, grandparents, a church that comes alongside them to say, no, here's what the Bible says. Here's how God created us to reflect his glory, how we are image bearers. And we accept that and praise God. And even though sin has made life difficult, we praise God for the gender he's given us. And we accept that. And so we teach children to put their confidence in God, not in this world system. Look at verse 5 with me. For he established a testimony in Jacob. I love this. Jacob would be another term from Israel, but here I think it's Jacob. I think it's the patriarch Jacob. He established a testimony in Jacob. What does that mean? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob established. Jews saw that, a third generation of something. Things were established. Now, certainly God established it with Abraham and his promise in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, that he's going to make a great nation that would be uncountable as the stars of the sky and the sands of the sea. But, but here, the, uh, the author here, uh, Asaph, says he's established in Jacob. And you go, well, what did Jacob have? Well, the Bible says when he went to Egypt, there were 70 of them. Eleven sons with him in Canaan. Twelve was down in Egypt already, Joseph. And all together, they were 70 people. And yet God called them established because they were his people. They come out by the millions, 430 years later, they come out of Egypt by the millions. But they were established there. This is what God did. He took nobodies. He took people that he says later are hard-necked and stiff-necked, hard and stiff-necked people. they They were not the best of the world, but he took them, chose them to put his grace upon them, and he established them. And it's to them, the next part of the verse says, he appointed a law. He gave them a law. And that law was to do several things. First and foremost, to show the character of God. The law is perfect. It's flawless. It represents the character of God. Second, the law shows us that we're sinners. 
And we must teach the children both of those. The law teaches the character of God. But it also shows us that we fall short of his glory. None of us can keep the law. They were asked that question tonight, weren't they? And they said, no. But there is one who did keep the law. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. He kept it perfectly for us. Then he says in the middle of five there, which he commanded our forefathers. This was a command. He taught them, Exodus chapter 20. They had to respond to it. Yes, we will do all that you have said. And they said they should teach their children. We're going to look at that passage in a minute. Verse 6, that that generation to come might know even the children yet unborn. Now, now, what I think here when I read that, my first thought here is that the generation to come might know even the children yet to be born. I think that's a statement of commitment to truth. We are committed to truth till the Lord returns. We're committed to the children right now. We're committed to their children and to their children if God tarries. Um, we're committed to the next generations and the following generations to teach the truth. That's the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are committed. We're staying in this. Yeah, and it may cost us dearly. And I don't know how many years we'd be left to meet in a building like this before they would take it all away. But we'll do it in home churches and we'll do it in jails. We'll do it wherever else. That's what the church has done down through time. They're committed to the truth. And committed to get into the next generation. It, listen, if we all die off in this room, and this truth does not pass from anyone in here to our next generation, we have failed. I mean, that's how serious God is about passing this on. You see why I, I get up on Sundays and said, hey, we need some children's workers. Will anybody help? It's, it's just not about filling a hole. Well, I'll go down there, you know, I'll, I'll suffer. Maybe I'll get an extra crown. <laughs> no. It's the great excitement of helping that next generation grasp the truth of God. That's, that's where it all started. I, I, I tell young guys who want to preach, I go, you go teach children. If you can handle that, we may let you in the pulpit someday. Because that's where it starts. You've got to be able to take these deep truths and communicate them to young minds. Break that truth down and help them understand that. Teach them the simplicity of the gospel, the, the, the very glory of God that they can get their minds and hearts around to do that. And, and moms and dads, that starts in the home, doesn't it? That starts right where you're at. It starts with prayers before we go to bed. Well, why are you praying and who are you praying to? And those explanations have to be made. Who, who, who is he and why would we pray to him? Why would, why would we take one day out of seven days and, and dedicate that to church and to growth and to singing and worship and fellowship and all the things that we do on Sundays and, and then give another Wednesday night? Maybe you're involved in a home group or a community group. or you're in, Why would you give all that time up? Your children need to know that. They need to know why he's glorious and why he is so desirous of our hearts. Look what he also says here in the six that they may arise and tell them to their children. Oh, see now, now that's success. It's passing on. See, this is why all the communist manifestos said they had to get to our children if they're going to destroy America. That's, that's why. They, they know. They know if they break the chain, and, and of course we're thinking politically and, and freedom and the kind of things uh, what America would I hope still stands for. Um, they know that has to be broken. But they knew what that was in their own country. It isn't hard to be in Russia and talk to the old Russians, the old Christian Russians. 
They, they, they said they strove to break us. And the first thing they did was they went after our children, took the husbands away, put them on the Russian front, took our children from us so they could break the chain of Christianity. That's the goal. And here's just done a little sneakier, isn't it? It's just done through bad teaching and breaking down morals and different things. And See, that's our job. That can't let that happen. And I, I tell people, look, if, if you can't school your children at home, put them in a school that can, that you can trust with the truth, and then come alongside that school. These are such important truths. And this is why we take time to teach these truths. Look at verse 7 with me. That they should put their confidence in God. Well, that's what happened to Israel. They lost confidence in God. They, they quit teaching him. Somewhere along the line, someone dropped the ball, and the nation of Israel did not teach the next generation. And guess what started looking good to them? Baal. Astroth. Foreign gods. Foreign women. Foreign belief systems. Those things started attracting them, and sooner or later they pulled them away. You say, well, Scott, that's, that's pretty serious. I, I can't even tell you how many families that Gina and I have met with through the years that their children went off to college and abandoned the faith. Baals, astroths are still alive. And they're after your children. And so our goal is to teach our children to have confidence in God, not confidence in this world. James 4.4 4 is a great verse. If you're going to be a friend with the world, you cannot be a friend of God. In fact, you're hostile to God, that verse says. I mean, we have to teach our children that. We have to help them understand, hey, that is hostility towards God, that what the world is teaching. And yeah, we have to have them have a healthy understanding that God still saves people, and we're there to be a representative of God. We're his ambassadors here on this earth. We share the gospel with others, and yet we live in a very dangerous world. That's parenting today, <laughs> But that was parenting in the Old Testament. They lived among the Philistines. They lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, and the Jezreites, and so forth. And you go right down, and every one of them worshipped pagan gods. And guess what they loved to worship? The creation rather than the creator. Sound familiar? A baby seal has much, much better uh, chance of living in this world than a baby in a womb. That's how far we've got. Our children need to know that. Our children need to understand who God has given a soul to and who he has not. And so verse 7 says they should have confidence in God. And look at this, and not forget the works of God. It's challenging to sit with a college student who has bent the faith. The things that come out of their mouth sometimes when you go back, and often I'll go back and I'll say, well, can I read you some passages? And I'll read them a great passage about the greatness of God. I don't see you just don't believe that anymore. Is that just a lie? Did God not do that? Trying to hope to store some kind of conscience within them that, that there is a God and he is who he said he is and he did what he said he did. Hoping that the spirit of God is drawing or prick the heart of that young person. So we have to sit down and engage with that in a loving and gracious way, but we have to engage with that. Because this is what happened to the nation of Israel. They forgot that God splits seas. That God destroys enemies. That God feeds in the desert when there's nothing there. Shoes don't wear out. We forgot that. And they fell apart. Notice 
He says, but keep his commandments. Jesus himself said, the one who loves me keeps my commandments. It's the difference, right? Now, we don't keep them in order to gain salvation. We keep them because we have salvation. And there's great commandments all through the New Testament. How about this one? Husbands, love your wife as Christ loves the church. It's all an imperative. It's a command. Live lives that are pleasing to the Lord, Colossians chapter 1, verse 10. Great command. These are commands given to us, and, and we don't keep those to gain salvation. We keep those because we have salvation. Jesus says, the ones who love me keep my commands. And so there's a, there's a stark difference. And so here, all the way back here, these commands were to lead them to a knowledge of God, a dependency of God, a hope in a Redeemer who could save them. All of the lambs and the bloods and the sacrifice and all that stuff was all to point them to someone who could deliver them. And so when they kept the commands, they realized that there was a God who set this for them. Though they failed, he made a way for them to be reconciled, and it put within their heart a need for salvation. And so when he says keep the commands, he is not saying, well, keep these commands and then you'll go to heaven. When, when the nation of Israel, the commands of God were put in front of them, it was help them to revere God and know they needed him to save them. You see the difference of that? But sometimes as Christians, we start teaching a lot of commands to our children without them understanding the Lord Jesus Christ that all of those commands point to. There's a big difference there. And so we can raise little Pharisees. And we must be careful of that. Our, God is to t- our job is to teach the commands of God with grace and mercy, all gospel-centered, all fulfilled in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at the last verse with me, verse 8. And not be like their fathers. Hmm. That's quite a phrase. Dad's in this room. Would you want that phrase said about you? Would you want God saying that phrase about you to your children? Don't be like your father. Wow. Kind of sobering when you read that, huh? I, I, I hope we're not there. And, and, and again, there's no perfect fathers in this room. There's no perfect men, right? We'd all say that men, right? But we have a God who forgives us. And we stand in the perfection of our risen Savior and his work. And, and us fathers, we fail and we confess our sins because he's faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sins. And we communicate that to our children, that their dads are sinners, but Jesus died. And we pour our hearts out in front of them at times to help them realize that they can walk with the Lord Jesus. Because we have the spirit that lives within us, the truth of the word of God. That's a father who has not turned his back on the truth. That's a real father. A father who always states perfection and barks commands at kids is it really a false father when he himself is not living that. But a father who admits that he's a sinner in, in his desperate need of the Spirit of God and the Word of God in his life, admits that to his children and walks with his children through that and to raise them in that admonition of the Lord, that's a father. The problem is Israel's men were not fathers. And so God's Word says, don't be like their fathers. Let me read you one verse that's very, very sobering. It comes from Joshua chapter 2, verse 10. Joshua has died, and then this verse, verse 10 says, All that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them. Now listen to this. 
this makes me weep, who did not know Yahweh. It's Lord, all capitalized. They did not know Yahweh, nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. Let me put it into New Testament time. Children of church members did not know Jesus Christ and did not know his finished work on the cross. That's sad, isn't it? Look, when you study this stuff, you go, oh, Lord, I have not been the best father at times. But what the best father, what those fathers do is they say, forgive me, Lord. And you make sure you're right with your children. And you teach them that the Lord does forgive. And you get up and you live a life that honors the Lord because he has forgiven you. And so let's not be like verse 8, not like their fathers. Notice they were stumble, uh, stubborn and rebellious generation. That's what came out. I, I said this, I said this, I think, last week or whenever, whenever I was in, I don't know when I said it. But I said, what, I, I just asked the question, what book follows Joshua? Probably the single book where we see this, the nation walking with God for the longest stretch of time um, and, and the in a generation or two that really live for God. What comes after? What's the next book? Judges. And it's all because they did not pass it off to the next generation. They were stubborn and they were rebellious. And notice a generation that did not, oh, this is such a key. Moms and dads, I want you to see this, and grandparents. A generation that did not prepare its hearts. You know, what does that mean? You know, when you study Israel, even in their even in their most wicked times, they went to temple. They sacrificed lambs and first fruit offerings, and they did all of that. Then they turn around and sacrifice their babies to Baal. What does that tell you? They lived a religious life. Nothing got to the heart. Christians live by the heart. Our hearts is what God saves and rescues. Our hearts are what are transformed. But this generation was rebellious and stubborn, and their hearts were not changed. And notice that the Bible says, whose spirit, small s, was not faithful to God. That means their person and their, who they were, their spirit, their soul, their, their person, they were faithless towards God. Their faith was in the world. And so here we have this, this wonderful psalm written to challenge. And then from there you see me read the next stanza. And then there's several stanzas that follow this as it walks through the history of the nation of Israel. I really encourage you to read that tonight. What struck me is that Asap was the choir director. I just got done reading through uh, the book of 1 Kings. I'm in 2 Kings now and 1 Chronicles and 1 and 2 Samuel. I've been kind of chronologically working through that in my own personal reading. And I, and I just... I think last week or so, was finishing the life of David. And before David dies, he places all of these men in prominent positions as his young son Solomon was taking the throne. And Asap is clearly marked. He's the worship leader of Israel. He places them there. And I, and I love this that Asap wrote this because this is the worship leader of the nation of Israel saying, we can't drop the ball again. See, worship is about theology, not about emotions and experience. Yes, we have emotions and experience when we're right with God, but it is about theology, and it's about truth, and it's about history, 
And that's what Asap does. He brings the nation, the worship leader, brings them back to the truth of who God is and how his people either believed him or they didn't. Well, you can read Deuteronomy chapter 6. What a great passage. We're going to get to that in not too long as I finish up Numbers and move into Deuteronomy on Wednesday nights. But there, I I think that passage, as I read that through uh, from verse uh, 1 all the way down through verse 25 today, and I said, wow, Asaph is, in a sense, he is, that's, his, that's his study guide as he wrote this. He goes back to Deuteronomy where Moses, God through Moses tells them to write it on your hearts, to teach your children when they rise up and when they lie down. That's that passage. So that they don't turn away from God. And I think that was his passage that he used. So the culture wants your children. They want your grandchildren. But God wants them to exalt him. And that's the war. There's a war for the hearts of your children. And that's going on. And so we believe in gospel-centered instruction and living. Right? Just not instruction, but living. You might be raised in a home that there's a lot of instruction, but there's no living. Or there might be a living without the gospel. Very confusing. So we believe in gospel-centered instruction and living. And that's what our children need. That's what overcomes the influences of the world. And we should take every opportunity we have to push the world back and teach our children the character of God, the life-giving power of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we should teach truth in our homes, and it should be taught in the churches that we attend. You should not go to a church that does not teach God's word (laughs) and hold to it. And willing to die for it. And that's getting rarer and rarer. And then, just to come alongside you, I want to say this very clear. Parents, we cannot replace you, nor should we replace you. We as a church, as elders and a body of members here, we come alongside you. We come alongside you to help you. That's what we're here to do. And take advantage of those things and then get involved. So Psalm 78 is the result of Failure to pass truth on to the next generation. And then I close with this. May it never be said that after our generation dies, this group right here, after we die and go on to be with the Lord, after this group dies, may it never be said that the generation that followed us did not know Jesus Christ and his word. May that never be said. Maybe some down, generation down the line, they may drop it, but not us, okay? Are you committed with me? We're not going to drop the ball here. And see, that's what tag's about. You just think that we're just trying to get rid of those guys down the hall? <laughs> no, no. We have way bigger purposes. We want to come alongside parents so those children know the Lord Jesus Christ. Father in heaven, we thank you for Psalm 78. Wow, what a passage. The history of a rebellious people. And there in the middle of that, a worship leader, a, a great shepherd of the people, this Asap, is pleading with this nation that's in a time of peace under David or Solomon to teach them that they cannot drop the ball on the truth of who God is. And he uses the example of his own nation to show what happened when they did. Lord, we are seeing some of that in our own Christianity in America. The ball is being dropped. The scriptures are being disregarded. The things of the world are held in more importance than the things of God. There's 
churches that are caving on truth. Lord, we can't do that. Not genuine Christians. Not Bible-believing, holding to an inerrant, infallible, authority word of God can't do it. We can't do that, Lord. And so, Father, we ask that you would strengthen us. And you, we would ask, Lord, that you would use this ministry to equip the next generation. You would use Riverbend Church and its members to be those who rise up and first in the homes, Lord, through moms and dads and grandparents and even single moms who know Jesus, who, who have to battle through hard circumstances. Give them the strength. Single dads who love their children, Lord, give them the strength to be the men, to lead a home and lead their children to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Lord, engage grandparents. Make grandparents not think it's retirement time when it comes to Christianity and teaching the next generation. In fact, we probably have more free time to be involved with these little ones. Lord, help us finish this. Finish our time on this earth well, making sure that the next generation hears the truth in a gracious and loving way, but hears it. Lord, give us Bible teachers, men and women, young and old, that will teach our children, that will teach from our littlest ones of holding babies and working through toddlers and on the way up through elementary age and then into junior high and then into high schools and college and career and and in college, our, our Bible colleges and our seminaries, teaching in those classes, helping this next generation take this truth forward. Lord, please don't let us drop this ball. Hold our feet to the fire, Lord. We want to see your son glorified. And Lord, we ask that you do this for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.